0: 355 Interlude. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. I'm your host, Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 355, Poetic Interlude. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hair Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hair at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. We've had a bit of a departure for this week. Instead of our regularly scheduled chapter of Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South, today we have a poetic interlude. This was born of necessity because Barbara Edelman, our incredibly generous book reader, has been ill and has had no voice with which to speak. So instead, I was thinking about something I said a few weeks ago about poetry and how much poetry has frustrated me in my own life, which is difficult when you're an English teacher. But also, I've been thinking a lot about teaching in general and how poetry is taught And I guess it must have been drifting around my husband's mind as well, because he just released a blog post for work on the importance of poetry and metaphor and being able to understand these things as adults and as members of society and as people who have inherited a long, long history of poems and poetry and figurative language and irony and metaphor. And that was all well and good, but there was not enough time in the universe for me to do all the research it would take for me to do an absolutely poem-filled episode. So I was stuck and didn't know what to do. So I woke up Tuesday morning and realized I had a solution to this problem sitting in the same room with me. I put a microphone in between my husband, Andrew Ordover, and me, and we talked about poetry. And because he was an English major and because he reads poetry, he mentions quite a few poems. So under Fair Use Educational Copyright, I have included in here audio recordings of some of the poems that he mentions. I've put links to all of the poems that he mentions in the show notes for this episode. And I've put a link to the Catapult Learning blog where you can find his blog post there are a few poems he mentions in this episode, but there's a lot more going on over at the blog. So, for listeners who are new, welcome. We are two thirds of the way through Elizabeth Gaskell's book, North and South, and we will return to that scheduled programming next week. For those of you who are longtime listeners, there will be no crafty content today except the craft of poetry. And, and I will divulge my frustration and suffering. <laughs> At the hands of poetry my entire life. But actually, the things that Andrew mentioned that I had to go and find, I really like them. So now I'm kind of intrigued and I have some new ideas. We don't have any solutions, but we do have lots of ideas, and I know that you will have ideas as well. Don't forget, we have a new listener call-in line. You can leave an audio message that I can receive as an MP3 file and play in a future episode. That phone number is 206-350-1642. That number is programmed into the CraftLit app, meaning that from the Android, Windows, or iOS app, as long as it is a phone and not a tablet, you can tap contact and the phone number will be one of those options. We also have the phone number listed at the top of the show notes. And as always, you can also leave comments at the show notes at craftlit.com, episode 355. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I will now turn you over to the conversation I had with Andrew beginning with my confession that I really don't like poetry all that much. I'm lousy at poetry, but you sent me poetry and I married you.
1: (laughs) So you must not hate it that
0: much. (laughs) I think it comes down to I don't hate the poetry that you send me, but that might be because I pay more attention to it. Well, I don't love all poetry. There's plenty of stuff I don't like. Is there an era you don't like? Or a style you don't like? I think...
1: I think the poetry that I've always liked is I like it the same, for the same reasons I like songs, you know, because the, the things that I've always written, they were stories or plays or novels now are always huge, long, cumbersome, ridiculous things. And I've always admired, you know, a song lyric or a poem that can crystallize something really quickly and condense something into a line or two. that. Someone like me would have needed pages to get anywhere near. So I think the, I mean, I don't like very long poems for that reason. I kind of like the short ones. But aside from just length, I like, I think I like the poems that have more dense imagery, where it's not as narrative or ballad-like. And I guess that's why I didn't like the romantics and Wordsworth and people like that who just sort of went on for pages and pages. But I, you know, I I liked Dylan Thomas and E Cummings, and and I liked the poems that, you know, as I said, it's dense, and it just kind of hits you over the head with something strange and and kind of ineffable. I think that's the word I I was thinking of earlier today when I knew you were going to make me do this. <laughs> um, and what do I mean by that? I mean the things that make it fun as a poem for me, or when it says. Th- something in a way that n- nothing else but that image and that poem could say it. And not only that it says it, but that the it it's trying to say it can't really say in a way. You know, the the power of the image is that it, it's, it's so visceral and weird in a way, you know, in the way that it, it paints a picture for you that you can't translate it. I mean, if you had to explain it, you probably could. It would take you five times longer and you still wouldn't do it right. You know what I mean? I, I think it's kind of like a joke. You can't really explain a joke. I mean, you you can try, but you kill it. You actually kill the, the humor in the joke by trying to explain it. It only works when it gets that eruption of a laugh from you, but not you thinking through, oh, well, that's very clever. Because if you do think through it, you don't you know, laugh. The laugh just happens. And I think the poems that I've loved the most have that kind of reaction, where there's something densely packed in the image that's almost beyond words in a way, that the image is is just what it is, and it's beyond explanation. But there's something absolutely real and communicative in that thing, even though you can't touch it or explain your way around it.
0: I think the first Well, the the first time it happened, it happened a long time ago, but it was because of a conversation I had with you. But the most recent time that this happened to me was working on the curriculum where I used the Child's Christmas in Wales, Mm -hmm. the Dylan Thomas piece, that I was unfamiliar with. I hadn't read it when I was a child. I hadn't read it when I was in school. I had no relationship with it at all. But you had said, this is going to be great. It's going to be great for this age group, and it's going to be great for these reasons. And so I went ahead and used it and it wasn't until I sat down with our boys and said I need to practice this with human people before I write the lesson plan because I I have no idea what normal people are going to say or how they're going to respond to this poem until I talk through it. I remember reading through it with them the first time because we were practicing close reading and and the the whole technique of going through it multiple times for different reasons not just to keep rereading the stupid thing over and over again. And the first time we got through it and the both boys said, oh, well, that's weird. And then we went through it slower and this time chunking it and taking the first paragraph first and both of them getting that look in their eyes like they didn't they didn't have it yet, but they knew there was something more than what they got the first time. And they knew there was something cool.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the danger of close reading is skipping that part. Yeah because if you don't let them have the experience and I think you're right with something really complex their eyes might glaze over the first time and I think you've got to get them to the point where they have their gasp even if they don't really understand it that thing underneath the understanding they get where they go oh that's really cool and then you can say okay now let's go through it and figure out why it's cool and what it's doing and and How did he write that to get this reaction from you? Maybe not what does it mean, because you may not get what does it mean. I think that's what kills poetry in school all the time is. And you get kids saying, well, it could mean anything you want it to mean. Well, no, I mean, it's open to interpretation, but it's not wide open. But being obsessed with what it means, I think, just drains it. It's more like, how did he do that to you? If it made you have that intake of air or even just say, I don't get it, but it's cool then I think the close reading is looking under the hood to see, you know, what made the engine go and that's worth analyzing and maybe some of, of what he's trying to do or what she's trying to do and what it means or, or just when he puts this word up against that word, what does it do to you? But if you get there first and they don't, enjoy it viscerally there's no point to the whole thing and and but doesn't matter what they're reading you know whether it's a novel or Winnie the Pooh or poetry and I think we skip that part too often in school of giving them the experience of just loving it
0: right or or not even loving it but I remember one of those aha moments when I was teaching was doing the quotes notes and thoughts and realizing that the thoughts weren't I have this deep thought about Huckleberry Finn and how it relates to time and space and humanity and the human condition and Mark Twain's idealistic cynicism and and all of that, that instead it was, you wrote this quote in your notes and you think you know why this quote is important, but you aren't positive. So you can write down that your thought is, I don't know why this is important, but it feels important. Something about mm-hmm. this is speaking to me on a level that maybe I don't understand yet, but that might be because I'm 14. But it might be because I just don't have enough yet to be able to put
1: words right. to it. And when I say loving it, I, I, that's enough, right? It's right. Feeling like there's something in there that you'd want to write on your wall. Right. Yeah. You know, like like uh, whether, I don't remember whether it's Seymour Glass or Buddy Glass or whichever one of the Glass brothers writes all the phrases on the wall, which mm-hmm. I copied because I was a pretentious arty kid
0: (laughs) which I fell in love with so that was okay
1: but you know it's taking ownership of that piece and saying I want that and I think it's okay to say I don't know why I love that but there's something in there that's that's clicking with me
2: one Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the sea-town corner now out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep that I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases roll down towards the two-tongued sea like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the firemen.
1: And I think it's okay to say, I don't know why I love that, but there's something in there that's
0: that's clicking with me. How did you get there, though? I mean, did you have a teacher that gave you that permission? Did your parents do that for you? How did you get to that point? Because I never got there until I was married to you. I, I don't have a clue. I think it's I think it's
1: just reading and, yeah. and having been exposed to people who played with language mm. as a kid, mm. you know, whether it was in, in children's books. And I think one of the reasons other kids don't get it is that they read garbage. You know, if they're reading Walter the Farting Dog and... <laughs> And SpongeBob knockoff books, and that's all they read as kids. They're not, they're not getting anyone who delights in language and Mm. and does those things like CDB or yeah, CDB very basic or the Thirteen Clocks, you know. And having having James Thurber read aloud to you, you can hear the poetry and the fun Mm -hmm. in the language. And if it's read to you a lot, you you just get it by osmosis somehow, and so you do respond to it or. Or just singing nonsense songs or things like that. I know when when Aaron was very little and and I would sing to him, we just made up words sometimes Mm -hmm. and just played with language and played with sound. And I think if kids don't get any of that, there's no fun in it. And they they don't see it later on when they see it. And I don't remember if there were any particular teachers who helped point that out. But I know there are poets like that that I resonate with. Like, I like Dylan Thomas. I like what he does with language. And I think that's similar to why I liked Salman Rushdie and I liked Tom Robbins in fiction. Mm. Because they love words in a similar way and they'll take a word and peel it apart and turn it inside out and just play with it.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And there are are things in Dylan Thomas and Fern Hill that I love, but I would hate as a teacher to be responsible for explaining every image. Because some of them are, you know like the Hay High Barn or something like that. They're pretty straightforward. But I sang in my chains like the sea. I don't know what that means. I know what it feels like. Mm -hmm. I kind of know what it means. But it doesn't literally mean anything. It feels like something, and it feels like something honest and real. You get that. But if I had to diagram it all and explain, Mm -hmm. like, this is exactly what he's saying about his childhood and childhood, Mm -hmm. I think, like a joke, it would just you know, vaporize and it wouldn't be there anymore.
0: Did you feel like Dylan Thomas made more sense when you got to Tenby, to his writing cottage on the water? No, as a
1: person maybe, but not the not the words. You hear more Welsh spoken, you get the rhythm of it, but not the sense of it. The sense of it is just weirdly him.
0: Which is very cool because that means you don't have to know necessarily all this history and weight and so. background.
1: I don't think to understand what fern hill means about childhood you don't have to have a picture of where he grew up Mm. because then what's the you don't they did a bad job with the poem right it doesn't say anything but i think it says a lot to a kid growing up on long island i mean i didn't know anything about his childhood in wales but i love that poem
2: now as i was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green The night above the dingle starry. Time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes. And honored among wagons, I was prince of the apple towns. And once below a time, my lordly, had the trees and leaves, Trail with daisies and barley, down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, famous among the barns about the happy yard, and singing as the farm was home, in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be golden in the mercy of his means. are the
1: poems I tend to gravitate towards, where where there's something that just gets under my skin about the imagery, even if I can't nail it down. in you asked me to think about poems ahead of time. And one of them that I thought about was Paul Ceylon's poem, The Death Fugue, which is a Holocaust poem. Mm. And it's the only poem, it's really the only Holocaust literature I know of that feels like it's, again, like touching the ineffable, like getting to the thing you can't really ever say. Mm -hmm. It gets close to that. And yet I couldn't possibly parse out the images and tell you the Mm. very first line is black milk of daybreak, I don't know what that means, but he repeats it over and over again. And there's something when you read or even chant, because it feels like you need to chant it, The first, even the first stanza of it, even if you didn't know when it was written or what it was written about, you'd feel creeped out and you'd sort of know what it was about. Mm. Without it ever saying, it's this country, it's these people.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There's, just, there's just something in there.
0: Mm-hmm. There have been a couple poems like that where... I don't think I knew where it came from or or the history of the person who wrote it, but it was one of those kind of like, oh, oh, and then when you start to learn more, you know, pieces click into place, but it doesn't necessarily change your reaction to the poem Mm -hmm. because the words are the words and they have that contact with your with your heart or with your soul or with
1: the and thing it, that makes meaning for you and it is like music the same way that the that a song is the combination of the music mm-hmm. and the lyrics i think poetry is like that good poetry you know it has a rhythm to it mm-hmm. even if it's, if it's a chant kind of poem like like death fugue mm-hmm. for sure but even fern hill has a lilting kind of rhythm and i you know you can't escape that it's the, the images work with it
0: you've mentioned fern hill a bunch now how old were you do you think, when you first came into contact I, with it?
1: It was either college or after.
0: Really? It was that late?
1: Yeah, because I, I I don't think I read any... I mean, I didn't sit and read poetry books sitting under a tree. I encountered the same, the same list of poems that are in every anthology when I was in high school and college. You know, the E. Cummings, I knew, mm-hmm. was that stuff. And then... I bought the collected E.E. E. Cummings and I started thumbing through it and I found all the other cool stuff that never got in, you know, that wasn't the, the good-footed balloon man or the Cambridge ladies, but the other ones that I discovered. Thing with Dylan Thomas, I mean, I knew Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night and I think maybe Death Shall Have No Dominion. There's some other, mm-hmm. There's some, I think one other Dylan Thomas that got anthologized, but I, awesome. I must have come yeah. across it either in college, in a class or after. What made you buy E.E.
0: E. Cummings, the collected works? It was Hannah and Her Sisters. Ah. The Woody
1: Allen movie, because one of the poems gets read aloud.
0: Is that and, how you got me to marry you? Yeah,
1: well, I think that's the same poem. <laughs> <laughs> My limited imagination, I used the same one Michael Caine used. And the book that he buys for Barbara Hershey is the same book. But I th- it must have happened the Black- before that, because I had that, I already had that book, because I knew when I saw the movie that he was citing the wrong page number. <gasps> which I mm-hmm. thought was brilliant insider knowledge because I checked after I saw the movie. Like, Did Why you would really? They pick the wrong page number? He has the book. He knows what page it's on.
0: You were such a snarky intellectual and,
1: and, already. I know, but it's true. So I, I already had that book. <laughs> I don't think I knew that poem before the, mm. the movie, but I had the, I had the full collective books.
4: A
0: good
5: time, I know you would. And uh, don't forget to poem him on page 112. It reminded me of you. Really? No. Oh. <laughs> page 112.
4: Bye. Bye.
3: Your slightest look easily will unclose me. So I have closed myself as fingers. You open always, petal by petal, myself as spring opens, touching skillfully, mysteriously, her first rose. I do not know what it is about you that closes and opens. Only something in me understands. The voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses. Nobody. small
0: hands. After we got married, at some point, I sat down with that book when you were somewhere, probably at a rehearsal or something. And I thumbed through it and I realized that I think that might have been one of those moments when I realized I know nothing. You know, this is a whole, I mean, I teach English, which means I have to teach poetry to a certain extent, but I stuck with the safe stuff. The stuff the stuff that I understood, which wasn't necessarily safe in the grand scheme of things, because to me, safe was Shakespeare mm-hmm. and Moliere and poetry that was theater poetry. That stuff I could do, and I could deal with rhyme, and I could deal with iambic pentameter, and I could even deal with imagery and metaphor. But when it got into stuff like Dylan Thomas and E.E. E. Cummings, I had no frame of reference for any of that. And I don't know if it's because... I came from parents who were scientists. I mean, I think it may have been that. And it's also that it's it's taught badly.
1: Mm. I mean, it's taught like the Dead Poets Society textbook. Mm -hmm. And then I think you get two layers of dumbing down. You get the easy poems are the ones that get anthologized Mm. generally. And then the easiest of the easy poems are the ones the teachers bother to teach because even the hard ones in the anthology. You know, so for E.E. Cummings, it's always the Cambridge Ladies and it's always I Sing of Olaf and it's always one of the goat-footed balloon man, or in it, one of the spring poems.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And they'll never teach Olaf because it's long and it's hard and it's political. Mm-hmm. And they won't teach Cambridge ladies because they don't understand it. So they teach the goat-footed balloon man. and And they'll teach it because it's cute. And what they'll teach about it is, look how he doesn't capitalize. And look how he sprinkles words on the page. And why don't you try and write a poem where the words are sprinkled on the page? So, I mean, the anthology did have some of the tougher stuff, but not it's the really dense stuff, but even at that level, the teachers will end up editing themselves out of it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think the same thing with Dylan Thomas. You know, Fernhill might have been in some of the anthologies, but the teachers wouldn't have come anywhere near it. No. But do not go gentle. They can teach. And yeah. they can say, this is a villanelle. Here's the structure of a villanelle.
0: Oh, my God. The, you remembered it's a villanelle.
1: And, uh, you know, and the message of it is is pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah. Although, then you look at something like uh, Frost's, um, "The every English teacher for the last 50 years has gotten wrong. Mm-hmm. Was that a New Yorker article that we read that went through and parsed the whole thing out and explained, or was it Atlantic? It was probably the Atlantic. Remember. The whole point has been misunderstood by at least two generations of English teachers. And, and you know, it just perpetuates over and over again.
1: Well, I think it's very dangerous I mean, it's your job as a teacher, you think, to try and explain everything mm. and define the world out of existence in a way. Mm. But I mean, if you if you say that's not what I'm going to do as a teacher, I think what I want is for my kids to have an experience of something. Mm. And then even get weirder and say, I want them to have an experience of something they can't quite explain. That's weird. Well, that's and it's weird, hard to dangerous quantify. territory. And that's almost like you, that's what Sunday school's for
0: yeah but it's also, I mean, if you're if you're being held to standards, which you know we've had many conversations about standards, if you're being held to standards, that's very squishy territory because, well, how do I show that my students are capable of citing texts and discussing at a collegiate level how they don't understand? Right
1: and that's why the standards won't ever talk about poetry they never do mm-hmm. the most they ever do is talk about figurative language and it'll say understand figurative language <laughs> and what they'll say in the parentheses is you know alliteration personification mm-hmm. so what they mean is define it and mm-hmm. be able to point to something and say that's personification mm-hmm. but what does it mean they don't ask for that and mm-hmm. how does it make you feel they'd say that's not about that's not of our business
3: mm-hmm.
1: So it's purely definitional, which is as low level as you could get, mm-hmm. is, you know, that's a this, here's a thing, that's another thing, that's mm-hmm. a noun, that's a verb.
0: But that's that's really interesting that you say that because the the minute you said personification, I just watched the video of me teaching the Zora Neale Hurston, which is the first page of Their Eyes Were Watching God. And it is as dense a piece of prose as any piece of poetry Dylan Thomas ever wrote. There is so much going on in that first page. And the kids were able to identify, here's personification, here's alliteration, here's extended metaphor, here's regular metaphor, here's imagery and all of that stuff. I'm convinced because they are born and raised above the Mason-Dixon line. To them, it was lovely. And by the time they were done with it, all three of them came independently to me and said, I want to read that book now, which is huge for the kind of weird experiment that we were in. But I'm remembering back to teaching it in New York City. There was always a split between the kids who'd lived all their time in New York City and the kids who'd spent their summers in the South with their grandmothers. And the the, the understanding, the visceral understanding of the text was completely different because of what they brought to
1: mm-hmm. the text. Well, and and because of the prettiness of the language and mm-hmm. because you only had an hour with them and it was only that first page, I think they responded to the prettiness of the language, but the ugliness of mm. some of the visceral stuff that's in there, I think, went completely over their heads, mm-hmm. because it sounded beautiful.
3: Mm-hmm. And- Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing, until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation. His dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things they don't want to remember, and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So the beginning of this was a woman, and she had come back from burying the dead not the dead of sick and ailing, with friends at the pillow and the feet. She had come back from the sodden and the bloated, the sudden dead, their eyes flung wide open in judgment. The people all saw her come, because it was sundown. The sun was gone, but he had left his footprints in the sky. It was the time for sitting on porches beside the road. It was the time to hear things and talk. These sitters had been tongueless, earless, eyeless conveniences all day long. Mules and other brutes had occupied their skins. But now the sun and the boss man were gone, so the skins felt powerful and human. They became lords of sounds and lesser things. They passed nations through their mouths. They sat in judgment. Seeing the woman as she was made them remember the envy they had stored up from other times, so they chewed up the back parts of their minds and swallowed with relish. They made burning statements with questions and killing tools out of laughs it was mass cruelty a mood come alive words walking without masters walking all together like yeah, harmony in the prettiness in a song. of the language and mm-hmm. because you only had an hour with them and it was only that first
1: page i think they responded to the prettiness of the language but mm-hmm. the ugliness of mm-hmm. some of the visceral stuff that's in there i think went completely over their heads mm-hmm. because because it sounded beautiful mm-hmm. and again i think that's what teachers hide from mm-hmm. so i remember I don't remember, but I know I read The Cambridge Ladies, again, going back to that one. I know I read that in high school. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you the teacher went through the first two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it because it's it's very straightforward. The imagery is fun and cool and it's snarky and it hmm. says what it says and it's, it's not hard. Right? The, the Cambridge, Cambridge Ladies who live, live in furnished, furnished souls, souls are unbeautiful and have comfortable minds. Also, with the church's Protestant blessings, daughters, unscented, shapeless, spirited. They believe in Christ and Longfellow, both dead, are invariably interested in so many things. At the present writing, one still finds delighted fingers knitting for the, is it, poles? That's cool. Mm. Are unbeautiful and have comfortable minds. Great. We can talk about
0: that. For days. For
1: days, right? And all the way through. And then you get to the last piece of it, and the last line or two it goes into some weird religious judgmental thing. Hmm. Maybe religious, maybe not. But I don't remember us ever talking about that. Hmm. And that's the part where it veers off into, I'm not, I kind of know what that means, but what does it really mean? And. Hmm.
0: But that's dangerous territory for teachers to get into, territory. right?
1: And that's the problem with good poems is that they're always going to be talking about real stuff that nobody wants to talk about. So the last piece of you it is, push. the Cambridge ladies do not care above Cambridge if sometimes in its box of sky, lavender and cornerless, the moon rattles like a fragment of angry candy. Mm. So, I mean, the, the, and that's a separate weird little Oh, it is. There's four dots, like mega ellipsis, that separates it from the rest of the poem. Right. And all the rest of the poem is just the snarky little, the rich ladies, the rich well-bred ladies are soulless and superficial. So it's this coda. And then the coda of it suddenly goes to this other place of celestial judgment. Hmm. And, you know, it's pulls way, way back. Mm-hmm. Suddenly in the got sky, shot. this cornerless, empty, weird sky, mm-hmm. and the moon is rattling like a piece of angry candy. Mm-hmm. But we never talked about that. Mm-hmm. And why is it angry candy? And why mm-hmm. is it the moon? And is that God? Or is that the whole universe? And what is the, what is it saying about superficial people? We didn't go there.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know that there are answers to those mm-hmm. things, you know, other than, I don't know, when it says the moon, what does it feel like?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's both close and not close. I don't know. And why is it a cornerless sky and why and, angry candy, and. angry and candy go together, interestingly. But we never talked about that because Mm-mm. that's harder. And that's, I think, one of the places where teachers would also say, well, it could mean anything. So how I, how, I can't teach that. But Whereas furnished souls, are, I know exactly what to say about that. But the moon rattling like a piece of angry candy, I'm not sure...
0: But other it can't mean anything. It can't mean hot dogs. No, I you know not And I think that that's where... But if they where, don't know
1: exactly what it means...
0: Yeah, well, that's where we they get scared.
1: To, or they're afraid to open up a conversation and get three kids disagreeing with each other and they don't know how to corral that
4: mm-hmm.
1: or whether to, or whether it's okay. Mm-hmm. Or are they just ineffective teachers if they say, well, those are interesting and I don't know.
0: Well, I think that one of the things that was so freeing When I left teaching in California and started teaching in New York was that I I think it must have been when you were teaching in Eastside. And so there's this whole metaphor exercise where you get kids to recognize that a simile is a specific limited thing and a metaphor is an expansive, uh, non-exclusive thing that it can mean all the things and that it's your relationship with the text as well as the author's relationship with the text, as well as in some cases your relationship with the author and what you know about the author, that brings meaning to it for you as a reader. And so, if that's true, and I think it is, then then it it frees the teacher up to be able to say, okay, go back to the text. Why do you think it's a hot dog? What is it about this moon thing rattling like a piece of candy that makes you think? pot dog and you get the kid to start talking about it and then they have something to
1: write about that's getting under the hood that we talked about right is is don't obsess about what it has to mean but Mm. you know what does it feel like what and what what did he do to get you to feel like that Mm -hmm. and maybe even like why did he break it there why is it four ellipses Mm -hmm. well it feels like he's separate he's separating it he's pulling back okay that's interesting so so the perspective changed, and why did he, why do you think you did that? I don't think it has to define everything and diagram it like a like a sentence mm-hmm. but I think you can analyze it and you know is it the imagery is it the the rhythm
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know does the rhythm change here why and in that Holocaust poem, you know why is it in, why is it this weird lilting chant kind of thing mm. if you're talking about something that ugly, what does it do and I, copied it so i could read a little bit of it i'm just going to cut it in the middle of a stanza because it doesn't ever stop black milk of daybreak we drink it at evening we drink it at midday and morning we drink it at night we drink and we drink we shovel a grave in the air that's three and a half lines
4: wow
1: i up and i'll do more of it so you can just hear it goes on we shovel a grave in the air there you won't lie too cramped a man lives in the house he plays with his vipers he writes he writes when it grows dark to Deutschland, your golden hair, Marguerite. He writes it and steps out of doors, and the stars are all sparkling. He whistles his hounds to come close. He whistles his Jews into rows, has them shovel a grave in the ground. He orders us to strike up and play for the dance.
0: Holy crud!
1: When was that written? I, I, I don't know. It's Echelan, C-E-L-A-N. I think it's it's late 40s or in the 50s. I know, so it's got this weird chant. If you look at it on the page, there's no punctuation. The words just go and go and go until you get to the end of the stanza. Mm. And then the next stanza is almost a complete repeat. It starts exactly the same way, except black milk of daybreak, we drink it at evening. He says, black milk of evening, we drink you at evening. Mm. And then he switches. Instead of golden hair marguerite, it's ashen hair shulamith.
4: Mm -hmm. And
1: so you've got the golden hair marguerite and the ashen hair shulamith going back and forth, and more and more words get translated into German as it goes on. Hmm. I think that may depend on the translation of the poem, but, you know, I don't know what any of that means literally, and I think, again, if you try and pull it apart and say this means that, it just falls apart. Mm -hmm. But there's something in the driving force that, I mean, he called it a fugue, and it just does, it does kind of just drive and drive and then fold in on itself and repeat with variations. And there's something mesmerizing and hypnotic and creepy about it. Mm -hmm. You know, and the creepiness sneaks up on you because suddenly we're talking about vipers. Mm. And then he whistles his hounds and then he whistles his Jews. And then suddenly the hounds don't seem so nice anymore. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And we dig a grave in the air, but then they're digging a grave in the ground.
3: Mm.
1: And I, I think you have to let it have its effect. And then you can talk about the effect more than the meaning, the feeling.
0: It almost seems like if I had had a way to teach poetry effectively when I was younger, which I don't think I had. I actually think that it helps to have some age on you in order to to deal with this stuff when you're when you're teaching, it's almost like you want that to be the the last thing they hear before they walk out of the room. And no commentary from you. It's just, you end that poem, the bell rings, you say, I'll see you tomorrow. And they walk out the door so that when they walk in the next morning, you're able to say, so what did you think about that poem yesterday? Because then they've had 24 hours to process. And certainly with a poem like that, I would think that that would be helpful to have Well, I some think time. that's
1: one of the nice things about close reading too is if the if teachers learn nothing about close reading except it's all about rereading. Mm. Like you need they need to read it three times, four times.
0: Well then that, so that makes is. that makes what we do on the podcast make that much more sense because so many people who listen to the podcast say, Well, I read this book when I was in high school, but I got so much more out of it now. It's like, well, this is your second time through.
1: Well, and hearing it read to you is very different because I remember when I was teaching uh, in a school for kids with learning disabilities and drug problems and all sorts of problems. And we always had the kids read aloud to us because we could pick up some of their their reading issues if we heard them read. And this was one on one, one on one. And I had a girl read all of The Great Gatsby aloud to me. Hmm. And I had another girl read Heart of Darkness aloud. Oh. And I appreciated those books in very different ways than I'd ever appreciated them before. Hmm. Just because I couldn't skim you know, when mm. you're reading and you're skimming, like, I get the big idea. But when you're listening to it, you kind of have to linger on every word and let the words, you know, each one have their impact and the rhythm of it. And you can't really skim when you're being read to.
0: And those are two books where skimming would be brutally, brutally wrong.
1: Well, and and again, I think that's why there are so many kids who come out of school hating all this literature, because all the teacher will talk about is like, what happened? Mm and if if all you care about with great gatsby is what happened in chapter 3 then there's no point in reading it you might as well read the cliff notes because yeah. the plot is ludicrous right there's nothing to it it's tiny and it's trite mm-hmm. and that's not the point but if you don't know what to do with it except summarize it
0: then they're not going to get anything out of it what was your favorite part of the great gatsby
1: there were times where the the scene with the shirts i loved and there were times where the very ending I loved and then just before it when he talks about the fresh green breast of the new world being corrupted and that that's what spoke to me and and got to me.
0: That's cool that it changes, that it moves as you change and move through life. I mean, I felt that way. I don't know why I don't allow that to happen anymore because I know uh, and I've I've used the examples before that the the Phantom Toll and the Little Prince very different books. I had incredibly different understandings of those books depending on when I read them, and I read them over and over again. And I imagine I read them over and over again because every time I did, it said mm-hmm. something different to me.
1: Well, and there are so many books we read when we're teenagers that we have no access to because they're about grown up things. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there were times where I reread The Great Gatsby and, and the kind of mournful adultness of Nick looking back and being the kind of conservative adult, having very mixed feelings about the wild craziness. Reading that at 16 is very different from reading it at 36. Yeah. And, 26.
0: and not just wild craziness, but the, the wild craziness attached to Gatsby, yeah. this tragic. But year.
1: And the waste and destructiveness, but mm-hmm. also the romantic, you know, all of that stuff that you need to kind of need to be more of an adult. And even even Catcher in the Rye, which is completely hmm. a teenage book, I remember reading it again when I was teaching it. And and suddenly I felt really sorry for his teacher, Mr. Antolini. Oh, God. Yeah. Because there I was, a teacher, reaching out to troubled teenagers, and there he was, blowing it like, and yeah. missing his chance.
0: And but, not only that, but misunderstanding Mr. Antolini. Right. Completely. And the kid, them both misunderstanding each other. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Well, I hated I hated Catcher in the Rye when I read it when I was 17. I thought he was a whiner and an idiot. And then I went back and read it again when I was teaching it. So I was twenty. I was 28 or mm-hmm. 29 when I when I did that. It was a completely different book.
1: I didn't even get, you know, the one good thing about books in high school is that they come kind of pre-symbolized for you. <laughs> like, here's To Kill a Mockingbird. Guess what the central metaphor is going to be? <laughs> here's Lord of the Flies. Here's Here's Catcher in the Rye. It's Animal great. farm. Yep. It's all right there for you. Mm-hmm. They put it in the title. It's going to be important. <laughs> and yet I have no memory of being, of talking about the image of The Catcher in the Rye when I was reading it in school.
2: Mm,
1: and that I do. was one of my favorite high school teachers. And it wasn't until I was teaching it and going through it again that that jumped out at me, which it never did when I was a kid. And that image of him in the field trying to catch the kids and how that connected to the image of the carousel. And watching his sister go around and around and around, and why that's the moment of his breakdown. Like, oh, it all comes together now, and I could really teach it then and point those things out, and get the that's cool aha moments from the kids because that's when the you know the symbolism and the imagery really connected with them and connected with the whole story. So there's the whole story in one. If you had to paint one picture that tells you what the story is about, there it is.
0: And so is is the fact that you were able to take a 36-year-old reaction to and understanding of a text that you had completely non-understood when you were their age, is your ability to have done that just that you... (laughs) that you're a super genius or or did it have something to do with storytelling and because we've talked about this before that the teachers aren't taught how to tell stories because it seems to me that every single one of my English teachers with possible exception of one had their own relationship with the text Mm -hmm. but that they were entirely incapable of communicating that passion or that understanding or that excitement to their students, where I feel as, as though you and I have had an easier time doing that. And the only thing we've got going for us is theater background.
1: Yeah, I think that helps. I think that helps. And the theater background, I mean, theater is strange because, you know, the real stories is taking place in their heads in the audience.
3: Mm-hmm. Is it just
1: that I, we're comfortable that, with that being? I think it's it's comfort, comfort with that. And I think maybe it's being less didactic about telling you what Mm -hmm. the story means or what I like about the story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know I've tried, it probably failed a lot, but I think I've tried to pull back from that point and think of it more like that, the synapse and the nerve endings, you know, Mm -hmm. just bring the two things close together and let the electricity jump because that's where the fun is rather than smushing them together and saying, this is that. So you get that gasp, that moment of the jump where the kids go, (gasps) but they can't get that if you connect all the dots Mm with them. You just got to bring them close enough that the static electricity is there, you know, you've got to explain it enough that they can take that step themselves mm-hmm. and do the work themselves, and then they own it mm-hmm. because they've made a connection. You can't, right? But if you're making the connection, I, I had a visiting professor in college who was f- from Alabama, I think, and we were reading some T.S. Eliot poem, and and every connection he had to it was from growing up in rural Alabama, <laughs> which was fine for him, but it had nothing to do with me. And I got very angry because as far as I was concerned, it had nothing to do with T.S. Eliot either. (laughs) But I know he owned it. Right. That was his T.S. Eliot and he had a right to it. But it left me completely in the cold and it didn't leave me room to make it my own because that was the interpretation he wanted and he had. Mm. And I was supposed to acknowledge it and respond to it. Yeah. And so it's just like explaining the joke. You know, like when when we're trying to help our kids tell jokes well, like, right. don't explain it to death. You've just got to let it sit. And if you told it well, you got to laugh. And if you don't, you don't. But kind of like a magic trick. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't do it twice. And if it didn't work, you just got to move on because all you're going to do is kill it.
0: It's so interesting because while you were talking about that, Professor, the phrase sage on the stage popped into my mind. And I realize now why that has become such a bugaboo in the ed world that there's the the coach on the side and the sage on the stage. And you don't want to be the sage on the, you want to be the coach, on, which is not true. You have to have somebody who can be up in front of you, who knows something more than you do, who can help you get to where you want to go. But the difference is a sage on the stage, if they're a real sage, would be raising questions and allowing you mm-hmm. to come up with your own answers. Whereas a didact would be telling you what the answer is. Right. And it's it's not the sage on the stage of the problem. It's the didact.
1: And this, I mean, Yoda is a sage, and he leaves plenty of room for Luke to figure things out. Anymore.
0: And not only to figure things but out, but hints, be wrong.
1: But he gives him a pathway, and he mm-hmm. hints, and he lets him be wrong and work his way to the solution because he knows he can't do it for him.
0: And he has to let Luke own it. When that, he gets there, Luke has to believe he got there on his own.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I agree. There's nothing wrong with being a sage. But you know, Yoda's 900 years old. Our <laughs> teachers are 25. I mean, I, I think it takes some seasoning mm-hmm. to have the confidence in yourself that you don't have to do all the work for them. Yeah. And the wisdom to know when to shut up. Or, you know, somebody was asking me this morning on an email if I had any research on teacher talk versus student talk. Or like what's the recommended ratio? Oh, seriously? Like a mathematical? Did anybody say, you know, you should be talking 40% of the time, let the kid... And we've got plenty of formulas about lesson structure. Right. But I haven't seen anything about discourse. There may be stuff out there, but I didn't see it. But I saw lots of stuff about the kinds of talk teachers do, you know, that it's okay for teachers to be talking, Mm -hmm. but if they're lecturing and just saying, this is what everything means, write it down, it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. If they're providing guidance and context and probing questions and helping kids reflect Mm -hmm. and asking them to repeat themselves, to hone things down. That's all useful talk. And there can be tons of it, but it's all
0: working on the
1: kids, not just letting them be the audience.
0: And I think that has to be a nice thing for teachers to hear in the long run, because you do, in the theatricality of a classroom, you have to keep the pace going. You can stop and you can pause and you can let them have that think time and you can count to 10 after you ask a question and all of the things that allow them that moment. But you can't have dead air. You can have thinking air.
1: Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is a combination of the sage and the coach, because a lot of the teacher talk that's effective is coaching talk. Mm. It's reflecting back to them what they did and showing them why it's mistaken and sort of shaping it. Try it again a little bit this way. Lift Mm -hmm. your arm like that, put your shoulder into it, Mm -hmm. the way an athletic coach would be, or lifting a ballet dancer's leg. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all shaping the performance and making them do it again and giving them feedback, reflecting back, asking questions. But I think there does have to be some of the sagely creating context. This is why this is important. This is why you need to do it. Mm-hmm. Here's what you're going to get if you can get it. So, I mean, I'll do another Cummings story. This is when I was teaching ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And I read I read aloud to them the poem, She Being Brand she New. She
4: being brand new and, you know, consequently a little stiff. I was careful of her and, having thoroughly oiled the universal joint, tested my gas, felt of her radiator, made sure her springs were okay. I went right to it, flooded the carburetor, cranked her up, slipped the clutch, and then somehow got into reverse. She kicked, what the hell, Nice minute I was back in neutral, tried and again slowly, barely, nudging my lever right oh and her gears being an a one shape passed from low through second into high like creased lightning just as we turned the corner of divinity avenue i touched the accelerator and give her the juice. Good. It was the first ride, and believe I, we was happy to see how nice she acted right up to the last minute. Coming back down by the public gardens, I slammed on the internal expanding and external contracting brakes both at once, and brought all of her trembling to a dead standstill. To them, the poem, She Being Brand New,
1: which violates what I said at the very beginning, because it's kind of long, <laughs> but it's kind of a cool poem, and and I was a first-year teacher in that school, so I would, Got away with stuff that I'd probably get fired for. So I read the poem aloud to them. They didn't have it in front of them.
2: Mm.
1: And I read it very straightforward. And the poem literally is about taking a new car out for a drive (laughs) and putting it through its paces. And so I read it to them and I said, What's the poem about? And they said, It's about a car. And I said, Okay, I'm going to read it again. And then I read it again with a completely different tone of voice because (laughs) the poem is actually about sex and about having sex with. You know, a girl who is brand new <laughs> and taking her out for a ride because Cummings likes those kinds of poems. So, again, they didn't have it in front of them. I just read it again with a completely different tone and their jaws dropped. <laughs> and then I handed it out and we went through it, mm. you know. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I what I wanted them to have mm-hmm. was the experience and the oh my God and the aha moment. And how could it be both things at once? And I think if you tweak that, mm-hmm. and that's what I was writing about in that blog post with the, the other Cummings poem, you know, if it can mean two things at once and not have to resolve into one, because that was the first thing they asked me when they got their hands on it. Mm. Is it about a car? Is it about a girl? Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> that's the whole point of it being a metaphor. It's, it is both.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's okay for it to be both. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. And it, the fact that it's
1: a girl tells you something about cars and the fact that it's a car tells you something about his female relationship believe about. About girls. and it's important that it's both at the same time mm-hmm. because they reflect on, it's not just one explaining the other mm-hmm. it's they explain each other they they're they're tied together and that's
0: what makes it cool that makes me think about the other thing that you brought up in the in the blog post about the ray bradbury story and the kids' inability to accept, was it the same class? The
1: same class. Was it the same?
0: And yet, when you brought them the story, the prose story, which isn't poetry, which is, it seems, a very literal story about knights in a dark night. Knights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S, in a dark N-I-G-H-T. That the the idea that the dragon could be something other than Smaug. They were incapable of accepting that. And I'll link to the Ray Bradbury
1: no, it's a wonderful story and I think it's the same thing. It's it's not that it was really a train but they saw it as a dragon. You know, it has to be both. If you somehow magically could drive a locomotive into the middle ages, it would be a dragon. It would be every bit dragonish. It wouldn't just be some strange thing. So it it is both. To them it's a dragon, to the other people it's a train and it exists in this both and neither. And that's what's fun about it and it took a long time to get those kids to the aha moment and it took too long and so they didn't have fun with it most other kids There's reading work. the story have that oh that's cool right and then if they're just reading it for fun that's all it ever has to be if you're going to tear it apart and study it in an english class then some awful teacher makes you understand why it's cool but you know then you appreciate it and you you see it again later and i think you know the value if you help the kids understand catcher in the rye the image and the carousel then they become independent readers and they catch those things the next time and they have the aha moment doesn't just pass them by. They'll catch it next time and just enjoy it.
0: I think that might be what went wrong for me all the way through high school was the last aha moment I got with text was in eighth grade. That was the reading teacher who did logical fallacies with us, but he also is the teacher who did all of the O. Henry stories, all of the Guy de Montpassant stories, But I never had, all the way through high school, I never had any teacher bring us to any kind of aha moment. Even my AP class, which I loved, which wasn't to say we didn't enjoy class, but there were no surprises in the texts. And maybe that's why I've had such a hard time with poetry my whole life, is that I just never had anyone say, "Here's here." I mean, I didn't even understand that I should read nonfiction and fiction and poetry and theater differently until i dated you and i said something to you about you know how the heck can you and you said well i don't read these you know texts on theory the same way that i read vonnegut it's a completely different
1: and i think part of it is what you said earlier about how you would do the holocaust poem with kids and just let them have it Mm. and don't do anything with it i think none of us are given time when we're in school to just linger with something I think if we read a lot outside of school, we get that because we're just reading it and Mm -hmm. go back and reread it and say, hmm, we'll read it and then go to sleep and just let it rattle around our heads. And I think those are the kids who are going to do better if they just have access to books and poetry as kids. And then whatever gets done to them at school isn't going to kill them. But if all they're getting is it at school and it's all about analysis to death and no appreciation of just being able to read it and reread it or just say, I'm giving you a Xerox of this poem. I want you to just hang it up over your bed. And I just want you to read it every night. And then in three days, we're going to talk about it. And just let your brain just sit with it for a while. And the kids would come back with so much more interesting stuff or questions or whatever with just being able to sit with it for a while. We never let anybody sit with anything because the bell rings. We're on to the next thing. And there's a pacing guide. And you have to accomplish. And you have to cover.
0: But you also... If you're teaching, but not only if you're teaching, if you're teaching or if you're a parent, your kids have to trust you that when you say, I want you to go home and I want you to hang this over your bed. And every night as you climb into bed, I want you to stop. And I want you to look at the text and I want you to read it slowly, not racing through, not pretending. It's not like saying your prayers at night where you pretend that God just knows what you just said and you're so done. Yay, God, let's eat. Amen. You're going to sit there and you're going to read it and you're going to pay attention and then you're going to go to sleep. And on Friday, we're going to talk about it. But we can't have that conversation if you don't do the work. If that's the thing you do the second week of school, you just lost. That's the thing you do Mm -hmm. in February. That's the thing you do after they trust you, after they know that you're not wasting their time and that you want to know what they have to say.
1: But I think you also have to, you have to trust The stuff you're bringing them to Mm, mm -hmm. you know and it is that scene from dead poet society if the first thing you do is make them read the introduction about how to graph (laughs) the quality of a poem then the entire year is dead Mm -hmm. i'm not you know not saying you have to rip the introduction out of the book or make them stand up on a desk and sound their barbaric yaw but and this is why poetry is dangerous i think there's a point at which if you if you're not going to deal with the what a barbaric yawp is and Mm. what it means Mm. and why it changed American poetry, then Mm. don't read it Mm -hmm. because there's no point to it. And they're not going to get anything out of it, you know, because because poetry takes so much stuff and jams it into such a small space, it's all under pressure. Like if it was real physical stuff that you were jamming into a small thing, and if you touch it, it'll explode and it's hot. And I think the best poems are like that and and they can be dangerous to unpack because they're about hot emotions and intense feelings, whether it's love or sex or religion or despair. And, you know, what high school teacher feels safe talking about despair? any of those things. Or any of those things. And then, you know, with the new Common Core tests and test samples that I've seen, the poetry that they've included in the sample items is real grown-up poetry. Really? Like Anne Sexton that is not easy for kids to handle even with guidance,
4: mm-hmm.
1: certainly not by themselves, and it's about tough stuff. I think that's why we teach it badly, is that we don't know it, we don't trust it, and we're scared of really unpacking it and talking with kids about what's in there because we're gonna go to dangerous places that are gonna get us fired. And so, like I said before, you know, we go to what's been safely anthologized and then pick what's safest there mm-hmm. and then talk about half of it. So what's a teacher supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the question, isn't it? I don't know I know what I did, and I got away with it, and but I didn't teach for twenty years so.
0: But well, and we were teaching in New York City, and there's a lot more freedom in New York City than I had in Southern California, yeah,
1: yeah, I think i mean you've you've got community standards and school standards, and you've got to live within that stuff. I think you find you find ways in where you can I mean, you can teach Fern Hill without getting in trouble. There's nothing evil and ugly in that. There's still amazing, beautiful stuff in there. And I'm wrong because Fernhill. Hill, you could lead kids into all sorts of stuff because it's about the end of innocence. And the, the last stanza is childhood disappearing and flying away. And little did I know in these wonderful times that I was going to be dragged in chains off into adulthood. So, you know, in a, in a class of, in five classes a day of 30 kids, are you going to get one kid who's thrown into despair if he understands what that poem's about? Yeah, you probably will.
0: But if you've done your job, that kid's going to stay just a little bit after class and check in with you. And you're going to be able to see it and you're going to be able to catch him. And you're going to be able to say, read this other poem tonight. Yeah.
1: And if, if you're doing your job right, you do remind them that what's beautiful in this poem is the ability to have lived through that and hold on to it and remember it. Mm. And even though you're remembering it with some melancholy, it's one stanza of melancholy and three or four of absolute joy. Mm. And if you can get to adulthood with that combo, then you're doing all right. Then you win. The other sick thing we do because of who we are as a culture is the only emotion that's safe to talk about in school is sadness. Mm. Maybe kind of superficial happiness, but there are no good poems that are just about superficial happiness. Poems about rage not going to be safe. Mm. Poems about lust And there are some wonderful poems about lust. (laughs) You know, they're supposed to be intense, intensified emotions. And 90% of them, someone in the school is going to say, you can't talk about that. You can't read that. Right. So, you know, despair ends up being the safest thing. And then you can't even do that. Stereotypical adolescent girl mournfulness that you're allowed to have.
0: Well, you have to take all the dirty jokes out of Romeo and Juliet and Taming of the Shrew and Hamlet. And I mean... Yeah. And I, you know, so
1: why is poetry taught badly? Because the thing that makes it poetry is the thing you're not allowed to talk about, but please go teach it. Even if they know it and know what they're doing, they're going to have their hands tied behind their back.
0: Yeah. I remember it was my second year teaching and and so I was doing the literary magazine and the principal called me into his office. I guess I must have had to fly a draft past him or something because I remember the fact of being in his office and him saying, so Heather, do you ever read The New Yorker? And I, it was one of those kind of, what? Yeah. You've read the poetry in The New Yorker? I think as the head of the literary magazine, you really need to, to push the kids to aspire to writing that kind of poetry. And I, I just kind of, you know, smiled and nodded and walked out of the room and thought, my kid's poetry is awesome. <laughs> it's hard. It's interesting. It has metaphors. It has similes. Leslie it has Magnum figurative language. 1994, Writer's Block With poised pen, I stare at the page and pensively await to create. The glaring white sheet stares at me with its blue lines laughingly. Slowly, my pen creaks out a single word. Once. I immediately tear the page out and wad it to practice a three-point shot into the round file. But once has so many possibilities. Like, once I finish this poem I am going to slash my true love's throat. Or, once I believed there was justice. Something majestic and real. But now I'm back to empty blue lines. On the other hand, I now have endless possibilities But still, I sit. The little elves that run the gears in my brain didn't eat their Wheaties this morning. My pen feels brave and offers the word escape. This time, I miss the three-point shot. I could have written, escape with me, my love. Or, escape from me, my love. But again, the blank page leers at me jeers at me. And still, I wait to create. Leslie Marianne Neal, 1994. Feel ...something, so that got included. And I couldn't explain that to him, but I thought, wow, that's really, that's really not getting the whole point of the literary magazine. You know, you take what the kids can do at this level, you refine what they can do at this level, and then you let them show off what they can do at this level. It feels like there's a tension in the educational world between expecting the New Yorker from the students when they when they write poetry and not understanding that you can't get that from them, not only because they're too young, but because you're not allowed to teach them that kind of poetry mm-hmm. at a level that would allow them to understand it and then produce it themselves because they're not allowed to talk about sex. They're not allowed to talk about...
1: No, and that's the bind we're all in is that we're supposed to develop skills, but God help you if they apply it Mm -hmm. skills, analysis to what's in the world around them. Or logic. Or expression to anything Mm. real in their life. Right. You know, so that's why we ended up with reading strategies but no content and writing five paragraph essays about nothing. Right. Or we're going to learn poetry because I will now teach you haiku (laughs) and just write nonsense, but it's got to fit the structure. Or a villanelle, here's an interesting structure, write something. Like, okay, you can learn there's a structure but I mean, how much value is there you're not a, nobody cares what you're expressing only that you made it rhyme here and there and
0: there right i remember being graded on stuff like that i wrote what i thought was a kickin ballad about moving from california to tucson it followed the ballad structure it actually was based on a song like a old west ballad that mm-hmm. dad used to play on the guitar so i know it's a ballad and i was criticized because the Meter was different than the meter that we had done in class. My rhyme scheme was perfect. My content was valid, but the meter was a little bit different. It's like, so I get a B minus. That yeah. was the last time I wrote a ballad.
1: Right. So that form, which has lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years outside of schooling to carry information and history. And carry it in a way that it can be adapted and added to mm-hmm. and added to and added to over the years mm-hmm. is a completely dead form because it got schooled, right? And it's nothing except the, this shell, which mm-hmm. means nothing but fit into it. Oh, you didn't fit it right. But it's got, and you know, when you divorce that from teaching history or teaching music or teaching anything else, then it doesn't
0: have any meaning there either. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up history because I think I would have understood some things about history much better if my history teachers had brought in poems, especially ballads, because the West, the cremation of Sam McGee, just the the mm-hmm. exploration of the the northern frontier, there's so many places where having access to the poem, which taps into more than just facts, it gets into the emotion, all the stuff that usually gets left out of history, that would have been great. Well, it's it's all the
1: separation we do, right? Because why are you teaching music to little kids besides band? Mm-hmm they're playing instruments, but when they have that just music class where they sit and sing songs,
4: mm-hmm.
1: or they get introduced to the drum, or, or the teacher brings in different cool instruments, why is that a completely standalone class, and why isn't it done as part of literature and part of history? Mm-hmm. So that when you're studying a period of history, you're learning and singing the songs, mm-hmm. right? Sing Civil War songs when you're studying the Civil War. You get something, especially if you sang some Union songs and some Confederate songs and got both. And, you know, learn music of different cultures when you're studying different cultures. We just artificially carve up the world into all these different
0: pieces that mean nothing separate from everything else. And teachers are given no time to have that conversation between the disciplines. So if you are an adult and you realize that you completely missed the boat and that poetry has meant nothing to you, but now you're curious. And you go, okay, well, maybe there's something worth looking at. Where would you start? Where would you tell somebody to start?
1: I don't know that I would because it's because everybody resonates with something different. So yeah. I think, you know, we'll find some anthology and flip through it and just sample stuff till something makes you go huh? or ask some ask your partner to read stuff aloud to you so you can just sit there and listen to it until you go huh? And then if you like that, read more by that person or you know, just experiment. I think like we said, also just if you find something that makes you react that way, cut it out. And just stick it up on your bulletin board and look at it every once in a while, and don't worry about. It. Mm-hmm. Just let it work on you, and then go find another one, and you'll start figuring out what what you know makes your heart vibrate.
0: Because i i didn't have I didn't have any reaction to that Dylan Thomas piece until I got through it. No, the Child's Christmas. Child's Christmas in Wales. Until I'd watched the kids,
1: even when we read it aloud that Christmas.
0: Right over my head, couldn't have cared less. The imagery in the beginning of that is so dense. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean dense like hard to understand. I mean dense as in there is one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer. No, it's you know, it's true. packed and like And then a all snowball. of a sudden it
1: ends and you're in,
0: and you're in a normal story. story. Yeah. But you're right. And so, how do you get someone
1: to? But then maybe people don't respond to that.
3: Mm.
1: I mean, you you claim you don't respond to poetry, but there's some that makes you do that. I read a little piece of that Holocaust poem to you and your eyes bugged out of your head.
0: I'd never heard anything like that
1: before. Right. So something in that spoke to you. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what it was, but, you know, you're not immune to its charm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was swayed by its charms. Yes. But if you hadn't read, if you hadn't read it to me, I would never have come across it before. I I think sometimes it's better to have it read to you. Maybe I just need to be putting poetry randomly up on the Craft Lit Podcast feed and just, you know, without explanation, just it's gonna pop up and it's gonna be an interlude in between chapters and it's just a poem to listen to and call it done. Sure. Or not. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) You're no help. (laughs) <laughs> he shrugs. It's complicated, though. How do, what, do you, what do you do as a parent? What do you do as a parent to make sure that you don't kill poetry for your children?
1: I don't know. What have we done? I don't know whether we've killed it for our children or not, but they definitely enjoy language. Yeah. They play with it.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of freedom to play with language in our home. They don't get in trouble if they make a mistake, and we don't make them feel stupid if they make a mistake.
1: Well, and they had exposure to lots of fun, interesting literature and fun songs when they were growing up. It's true. They're not afraid of it. No, that's true. I think you have to assume that coming out of the box, they're primed to enjoy things and experiment with things and take things apart and put them together again. And how does this work? And mm-hmm. would it work if I turn it upside down? And we know kids invent slang and you know, mm-hmm. most when language changes, it's changing from kids. And more and faster now because kids have so much control of the media or Mm -hmm. influence on it. So they're primed to love playing with language. So I don't think it's that you have to make them do it. I think you have to just get out of their way and not kill them. You know, give them the exposure, let let them connect the dots and have the sparks and just throw stuff at them for their enjoyment. And they'll figure out what they like and what they don't like and try not to school-a-size everything till the, all the airs out of it.
0: That's true. I think that is something that we've been better at than I would have anticipated, is that the even though we've both been teachers in the past, when we've read a story with them or a book with them, it hasn't been. And so, what does Harry Potter's wand represent in this part of the story? You know, there's well, none of you, that stuff.
1: I mean, you ought to be able to come out of Dr. Seus's loving language. Because Mm -hmm. nobody plays with words more than Dr. Seuss does.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And our kids both loved all that stuff. And everybody who reads that loves it. I think it's that time after a little kid's books Mm. when it kind of just dies, which is when they go to school.
0: Well, and that's like a thing, too, with him. We couldn't get him to start a book to save his life. Once he was started, he was fine. But I mean, how many years did I go through having to read him chapter one and maybe chapter one, two, and three of a book mm-hmm. before he yanked it out of my hand and said, all right, I'm ready now. And then he was off with the series. I mean, even Percy Jackson, he wouldn't read Percy Jackson. He wouldn't read the Fablehaven books. He wouldn't even read Harry Potter. And sometimes even the second or third until somebody would read him the first couple chapters. Sometimes maybe it's just having having a voice in your head which again is why listening you know Larry Uffelman and I had that debate early on in our professional relationship about whether listening to books was whether it was fair to say that if you've listened to a book you have therefore read the book and his argument that was that it wasn't because somebody else was providing the voice in your head and what i used to come back with was yes but i've heard not such great readers read books and Me in my head, hearing them do it not well, is to correct them in my head, just as I would be doing if I were reading it on the page. You know, I I have the voice in my head. They don't match it. My brain fixes that.
1: But you, just because you have the voice in your head, your own voice in your head doesn't mean it's a helpful voice too, because you have all sorts of preconceptions, like we talked a lot about Dickens, because you've been doing so much Dickens. Mm -hmm. I know when I read Tale of Two Cities, because it was Dickens. (laughs) You know, the voice in my head through the whole prologue was ponderous and self important. And And the whole, like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That lofty. And it was, yeah, it was lofty and pretentious. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you know, let's get on with the story. But that's not what that prologue is doing, you Mm -hmm. know? And if you, and again, maybe it's reading it as a kid and you don't know any better, but that's why you need a good teacher. But if the whole book is about, Dialectics and it's the two cities and the two guys, and it's a far better thing that I do than I've done. Everything in the book is doubles, then that's what that opening chapter is for. Yeah. And you can read it with a whole different voice Mm -hmm. that's much more playful about it's this, but it's also that. It was this, but it's also that. We're going this way, we're going that way. Mm -hmm. I don't know where we are. And it could set you up for the story much better, but you can set yourself up with no one's help into absolutely hitting the book.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and it's, I think it's the same thing with Shakespeare, that if if your first experience with seeing Shakespeare done is people in stiff roughs walking uncomfortably about the stage, posturing and gesturing and orating, then you don't get any of the good stuff. You certainly don't get any of the humor, right. but you also don't get any of the really interesting wordplay and you don't get any of the really interesting characterization. You don't get the layers of weirdness played well, by you in you... any of that.
1: You, you think it must be polite because it's old, mm, and you mm-hmm. miss the Which fact. That it's like no, it was very raw and ugly, and blood and guts, and people having sex in the audience. It was, <laughs> believe me, you're much more polite than they were. <laughs> <laughs> but you think because it's old and it's in verse that it must be polite, and and I think you know being willing to talk about the the raw stuff helps. I think mm. and we joked about this before about you know letting the high school boys know that you know, most published poets from hundreds of years ago are men and they wrote most of their poems to get laid. <laughs> like please don't think for a moment that this is all flowery and you know peeling the petals off daisies. I mean there are some poems like that,
0: but most of them are not Yeah, Shelley Shelley and Byron, they had they had a reason for writing I mean, the poem. Yes.
1: Some people wander lonely as a cloud and it's lovely, <laughs> and others Want to do it in the road. <laughs> want to do it in the road. And, I mean, yeah, you get in trouble for talking about that stuff. But but you can raise un- your
0: eyebrows and look over the top of your glasses at them and go, eh? Yeah. And can, they supplies the rest and of it. it. You know, maybe it's just reading it to them. Without and commentary. I,
1: I, with no commentary, just tone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, read to the virgins to make much of time. You don't have to say much about it for the class to get what you're talking about. Right. Or sonora. Mm-hmm which I love and is one of my favourites and is a
5: really Cynara interesting. By Ernest Christopher Dowson Last night, ah, yesternight, betwixt her lips and mine, there fell thy shadow, Sinara; thy breath was shed upon my soul between the kisses and the wine, and I was desolate and sick of an old passion. Yea, I was desolate and bowed my head, I HAVE BEEN FAITHFUL TO THEE, Sinara, IN MY FASHION. ALL NIGHT, UPON MY HEART, I FELT HER WARM HEART BEAT, NIGHT LONG, WITHIN MINE ARMS IN LOVE AND SLEEP, SHE LAY. SURELY THE KISSES OF HER BOUGHT RED MOUTH WERE SWEET, BUT I WAS DESOLATE AND SICK OF AN OLD PASSION, WHEN I AWOKE AND FOUND THE DAWN WAS GREY. I HAVE BEEN FAITHFUL TO THEE, Sinara, IN MY FASHION. I have forgot much, Sinara, gone with the wind, flung roses, roses riotously with the throng, dancing to put thy pale lost lilies out of mind. But I was desolate and sick of an old passion, yea, all the time, because the dance was long. I have been faithful to thee, Sinara, in my fashion. I cried for madder music and for stronger wine, but when the feast is finished and the lamps expire, then falls thy shadow, Sinara. The night is thine, and I am desolate and sick of an old passion, yea, hungry for the lips of my desire. I have been faithful to thee, Sinara, in my fashion. Sinara,
1: which I love and is one of my favorites and is a really interesting poem. You know, it's, a, it's always going to be about Mm. Not polite, raw stuff. It's about hunger and love and lust and murder and death. and Pain.
0: Otherwise, it's not worth writing. Yeah.
1: They wrote it because it was heightened. So honor that and don't worry about being polite.
0: Maybe that's why I liked the romantics, was because they were so far out in front of that. They were so open and forward about what they were doing that they were at least able to break through the veneer. You could tell. You could just tell because they're so obvious about it.
1: Yep, and I had trouble with that in school because it looked polite to me because it was very metered and it Mm. rhymed nicely and it didn't feel immediate to me. It felt nice clothes, very polite, and Mm. that's the way it was introduced to me and it always had that veneer to me. Oh, that's interesting. Where Shakespeare and John Donne and people like that
0: didn't and the moderns didn't. That's interesting because my reaction to the moderns was so pained and restricted i think i must have gotten the romantics in college in my teaching credential time because i know we were talking about byron and well, all of his helps, many layers it wasn't, it wasn't high school that must have that must have been part of it because we did the moderns in high school and it was ugh, i didn't like elliot yeah. i didn't like proof Rock.
1: you didn't like proof Rock.
0: there was nothing about proof Rock that spoke to me until i was teaching and then i went oh
1: that's interesting
0: goodness gracious and then i liked it a lot
1: i felt very proof rock like even at 17 <laughs>
0: this doesn't surprise me somehow.
1: <laughs> and i figured you know if elliot could write it at 27 about someone who's supposed to be whatever he is 47 then god at 17 i can have access to it too. i dare to
0: eat a peach though well good And now, since we're in this odd virtual book club (laughs) that is Craftlit, please feel free to share the things that you have done as a teacher or as a parent or as just a person who has learned how to read poetry. Feel free to call in 206-350-1642 or go to craftlit.com and leave a comment in the show notes for episode 355. And you're also free to go over to the Catapult blog. Catapult Learning is linked to from the show notes, going straight to Andrew's blog post about poetry. And I think you can leave comments there as well. And John Scholes, our Jonathan Harker from Dracula, was kind enough to read Sonara for me and actually read a couple of other poems that I wasn't able to fit in today. But his comment was, you don't like poems that rhyme or have regular meter or what? So To make himself and me happy, he recorded The Walrus and the Carpenter for us. And that is what I will play you out on. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next week, and we'll have more Elizabeth Gaskell.
5: Take care. Bye. The Walrus and the Carpenter by Lewis Carroll. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billow smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because, she thought the sun, had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do it with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing-wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and weather pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, "'before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat.' "'Now, Harry,' said the carpenter, they thanked him much for that. "'A loaf of bread,' the walrus said, "'is what we chiefly need. "'Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. "'Now if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed.' "'But not on us,' the oysters cried, turning a little blue. "'After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do.' The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so nice of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but, Cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick, after we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but, The butter's spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Out, oysters, said the carpenter. You've had a pleasant run. Should we be trotting home again? But answer came there none, and this was scarcely odd because they'd eaten every one. The End
0: Like Craftlit? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, like us on Facebook, or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 app. You can use the same free craftlet app to access premium subscriber content on the go. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. So hi, Andrew. Hi. (laughs) Do you hate this? Not yet.